And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. If you guys get your Bibles and turn to right in the kind of middle of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. If you remember last week, I, I mentioned that we're going to do two weeks on this one verse because it, it the stuff that it covers is, you know, uh, pretty significant. It talks about suffering and glory in the same verse. And so uh, Ray Steadman says that's the hurts and the hallelujahs. And so last week we looked at the hallelujahs. We looked at our inheritance, the inheritance of God and being co-heirs, fellow heirs with Christ. And this week we're going to talk a little bit more about the suffering, the other part of the verse. Now, just for context, context sake, I'm going to begin reading in verse 16. So if you will, and if you're able, would you just stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? This is Romans 8, beginning in verse 16. And here's what Paul writes. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Let's pray. Father, once again, we just ask for Your Holy Spirit to be here and to guide us into this truth uh, concerning suffering. Uh, there are many faults uh, just beliefs and understandings of suffering. We want a biblical view. So lead us, guide us into that truth, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't think it was good exegesis, but it was kind of intriguing. A number of years ago, a churchgoer asked a minister uh, the meaning of the word reproof in 2 Timothy 3.16. You remember that's where Paul says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, that's the word, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And the minister replied this way, reproof means proof of doctrine and then proof and proof again. Reproof. Well, as I said, that's not what it really means. Reproof means to censure, to rebuke. Still, there is something to be said for reproofing. In fact, it's what we have here in chapter 8, verses 14 through 16. We've already seen three proofs that we are indeed part of God's family. First, we are led by God's Spirit. Now, this refers to our conduct. If we are following after Christ in true and obedient discipleship, then we are Christ's and we can be assured of our salvation. Second, we have the internal witness of our spirits by which we cry, Abba, Father. We know that we have a new family relationship to God. And third, the Holy Spirit witnesses to us. It's an overwhelming sense of God's presence, something that most Christians have experienced, experienced though they may not understand it or know how to describe it. Now, these items are certainly proof and reproof being three good reasons why a child of God can know that he or she really does belong to God and that nothing in heaven or on earth will ever snatch him or her away from God's love or break that family relationship. Today we're going to look at the problem of suffering. But why should Paul introduce the idea of suffering of all things at this point? None of us would probably do that. If we're trying to assure Christians of their salvation and its security, suffering is probably the last thing that we would mention. 
We think of it uh, in the problem category. Hugh Evan Hopkins wrote a book called The Mystery of, of Suffering. C.S. Lewis called his book The Problem of Pain. Uh, most of us can probably, you know, relate to Rabbi Harold Kushner's approach when he titled his problem-solving book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Now, we Christians acknowledge the problem of suffering, and sometimes we wrestle with it. But few of us would think of presenting it as a proof that the suffering person is a true child of God. It would seem to be the other way around, that God would be blessing you if He was His child. You wouldn't have any suffering, and that's not what we see in Scripture. So why does Paul drag the subject in here? Well, the first reason, surely, is that he is a or was a realist. More than that, as an evangelist, as a pastor, he knew that the people he was writing to were suffering. The early ministers of the gospel began to suffer for the gospel as soon as they began to obey the great commission of Jesus. Peter and John were jailed. Stephen was stoned to death for his faith. Paul himself was imprisoned, beaten, shipwrecked, starved, threatened, and exposed to the elements. And what was true of these early preachers soon became true of their followers as well. They were ridiculed, hated, abused, eventually martyred for their faith in great numbers. In addition, they endured the many disappointments and deaths and deprivations and disasters common to all human life in a fallen and extremely sinful world. You read the New Testament with suffering in mind, and you're going to be startled to discover how extensively it is mentioned. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. That's John 16. Most of the New Testament epistles have important discussions about suffering. Suffering is as common to God's people today as it was in the New Testament times. We need to understand that. Now, it's true that most of us don't experience that special kind of suffering that we call persecution, though our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world do. But we all know suffering. We suffer when we lose a husband or wife or other family member. We, we grieve when life itself or friends or our children disappoint us. We groan under pain and trauma and sickness. We're hurt by prejudice and poverty and, and sometimes just by a lack of rewarding work. The list, it truly is endless. Realism and pastoral concern undoubtedly caused the apostle to introduce this subject. Honesty. It did not allow him to talk about our inheritance without at the same time acknowledging that the path to glory involves a cross. Now, a second reason Paul probably introduced the subject is at hand is he must have been aware of the many non-Christian approaches to suffering that were all around him. They were around then, and they're still around today. Now, his words, though quite brief, they correct the following non-Christian approaches or perspectives on suffering. First, one response uh, to suffering is anger. Now, this is very common with unbelievers who blame or even curse God for their misfortunes. Uh, they blame, uh, but 
it's also true of some Christians. They blame God because He hasn't done something for them that they wanted, like giving them a loving spouse, forgetting that Jesus has not promised us an easy life here, much less the fulfillment of all of our desires. He has called us to discipleship, and discipleship is hard. The glory, the hallelujah, <laughs> is after. A second approach is avoidance. If the path in front of them looks hard or even undesirable, some people turn from it and try to find something easier or more rewarding. Or if the path cannot be avoided, they try to balance it with other things that are more attractive. Now, the ancient name for this approach is hedonism. The Christian form is to ask God to remove the undesirable thing, say sickness, particularly a terminal illness. Christians who take this approach think they are correct, think that the correct way is to ask God to remove the sickness so that afterwards they can praise God for it. And of course, it sometimes is God's will to heal the sickness. So it is not wrong to ask for healing. But this is not the most profound or uniquely Christian approach to suffering. A special form of this avoidance is used in some types of counseling there, the bottom line seems to be the individual's personal happiness, their fulfillment. Uh, they are advised to do whatever makes them happy or feels good, which ignores the truth that real growth comes by working through our hardships rather, rather than by avoiding them. Well, the third uh, non-Christian approach is apathy or detachment from the problem. It's the attitude that says, well, it just doesn't matter, and then tries to think about something else. Now, one form of apathy is stoicism. That's the philosophy of the stiff upper lip. Now, stoicism may, may help you get by, but it's joyless, and it's far removed from Christianity. Paul was surrounded by these non-Christian philosophies, just as we are today, which is why I suggested that that's a second reason that he introduced the subject of suffering at this point, and that was to simply counter them. For our part, we need to know that these approaches are less than fully Christian and come to the understanding of suffering in a different light. We need to know that for the Christian, suffering is the arena in which we are to prove the profession of our faith and achieve spiritual victories. Now, this brings us to the value of suffering according to a, a right theological framework or a, a proper worldview, a Christian worldview. It has several important values, talking about suffering, and the first is the chief reason that Paul mentions it in Romans. He has been talking of Christians being sons and daughters of God. Now he speaks of suffering as proof of that relationship. Though the suffering may be in any of three different forms, each with a particular purpose. Number one is persecution. Some suffering is in the form of persecution, as I mentioned earlier. And one value of persecution is that it proves that we really are the children of God. Now, Jesus taught this many times. In the Sermon on the Mount, this was near the beginning of His ministry, He said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Me. 
Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, in the upper room near the end of his ministry, he said, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words that I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Now, there are two just kind of basic points here. First, Jesus suffered. Suffering was his lot, and it has always been the lot of God's godly people. It must be that way since they were and we are living in a sinful world. Second, suffering proves that we are on the side of Jesus and these godly people because if we weren't, the world would approve of us rather than being hostile towards us. Jonathan Chow, he's the president of Christ College in Taipei. He's also the director of the Chinese Church Research Center in Hong Kong. And he has studied suffering in the context of the suffering of the church in China. He says, one can almost say that suffering for Christ is a mark of discipleship. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who explores this line of thought extensively in his study of Romans 8.17, he says, If you are suffering as a Christian, and because you are a Christian, it is one of the surest proofs that you can ever have of the fact that you are a child of God. Now that's an important purse use of persecution. It proves that we are Christians and therefore disciples for Christ. Well... Number two is purification. Not all suffering is in the form of persecution. Some of it is from God and is for no other reason than to produce growth and holiness. This is what the author of Hebrews is talking about. When he wrote in reference to Jesus, he says, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God should make the author of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. Now, that's a bold thing to say, of course. It suggests that in some way Jesus was not perfect. And, of course, uh, that causes us to think immediately of some moral imperfection, but it'd be wrong to think that way since Jesus was utterly without sin. He was morally impeccable. Nevertheless, as Luke says, his life in the flesh included growth in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Hebrews 5.8 says, although he was a son, talking about the son of God, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Perfection means completeness or wholeness. And Jesus grew into a wholeness of experience and trust in God through sufferings such as poverty, temptation, misunderstanding, loneliness, abuse, and of course, betrayal. God used these and many other experiences to perfect him. Guess what? He uses those same things to perfect us. Now, we are sinners, of course. So one image the Bible uses in speaking of this similar work in us is the refining of precious metal. It pictures God as the skilled refiner heating the ore up until the dross that has been mixed with it rises to the surface, 
where it can be scraped off. Now, the refiner knows that the metal is ready when he can see his face reflected in the shiny, molten surface, uh, surface. In the same way, God purifies us until He can see the face of Jesus Christ in His people. Now, another image of, Christ, of Christian suffering is that of God disciplining us as an earthly father disciplines His children. Now, this is from Hebrews chapter 12. The author, there, the author there says this, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. No discipline... <laughs> this is one of those things that's kind of self-evident. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So discipline is part of this purification process. Number three is training. A third kind of suffering also has value for Christians, and it can be linked to the suffering endured when a soldier is trained for combat by his commanding officer, or, for that matter, the suffering endured in the battle itself. Paul wrote to Timothy, endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Elsewhere, he changes the image and he speaks of the rigorous preparation of an athlete. He says, I beat my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. If you are called to endure any of these three kinds of suffering, you should be encouraged by them because they prove that you are a child of God and are being prepared to be used by Him in the spiritual warfare that will lead to final victory. Well, let's talk a minute about the power of the Christian's witness. A second value of suffering is that our witness to Christ is empowered by it. Now, I don't mean that we grow stronger in our ability to witness to Christ to the extent that we are called to endure persecution or some other form of suffering, though that is undoubtedly true. All you have to do is look at, say, the blind man in John chapter 9. He grew stronger in his witness every time the religious authorities leaned on him to get him to modify his testimony. What I mean, rather, is that the witness of Christians carries particular weight when it is given under duress when it is evident to everyone that it would be easier and apparently more rational to back off from one's witness. Or even as Job was advised by his wife to curse God and die. Physical suffering gives particular clout to the witness of Christians. It means something special when a person can testify to God's grace when he or she is suffering from acute bodily pain or while dying. It's even more convincing when Christians bear witness to Jesus when they might suffer the loss of all things for it. 
Now, I previously mentioned Jonathan Chow and his insights into Christian suffering. He has studied the suffering church in China and reports many instances of this empowerment. One young Chinese pastor was imprisoned in 1960 and released in 1979. When he was released those 19 years later, he discovered that his parish had grown from 300 to 5,000. And today, that community has grown to over 20,000 believers. In 1982, a Christian community in central China dispatched a missionary team in response to a Macedonian-type call uh, for help from another area. And sure enough, in a month of intense work, they'd established several new churches in this new area. But then, most of the senior pastors that they had put over these churches were arrested, and they were imprisoned for four years. However, their arrest, it forced those younger pastors to take over leadership positions, And as a result, not only were those home churches cared for, but the mission expanded and the growth in that area was phenomenal. People were persuaded to believe on Christ by the quality and the duration of the leader's suffering. A 14-year-old girl, she understood this. She was one of nine young evangelists who were arrested by the local police and forced to remain kneeling in one place day and night. On the third day of this torture, she fainted and was released. The others were made to suffer the same continuing torment for nine nights and eight, or excuse me, nine days and eight nights. Eventually, too, they were released. And when they were united, reunited, the 14-year-old began to cry. Why are you crying, they asked her. She replied that she was crying because they had been called on to suffer for nine days, while she had only been called on to suffer for three days. This is a 14-year-old girl. She understood the point of suffering for the sake of Christ Jesus and counted it not a burden, but a privilege. Is it any wonder that the church in China is growing at a tremendous rate while the church in America is barely holding its own in numbers and is declining markedly in devotion and character? Most of us want only the good life, not godliness. And our 14-year-olds, they think they are suffering if they have to get off their phone or their iPad and do their homework. The final thing we need to say about the value of suffering is that it it, it is the ordained path to glory. Paul says this explicitly in verse 17. He says, we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. He also says it elsewhere. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, he, 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 he writes joyfully, for our light and momentary troubles... <laughs> are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Two basic things to remember about suffering. First, suffering is necessary, so don't be surprised when you suffer. Jesus taught that it was necessary for himself 
when he said to his disciples on the remote, on the road to Emmaus, do you remember? He said, "Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter His glory?" And then he proved that it was necessary by showing it to them in the Scriptures, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Now, Jesus taught that suffering is necessary for us when he said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. He also said, in the world, you will have tribulation. Second, although suffering is necessary and has value, suffering is not the end story for Christians. Glory is. If suffering were the end, Christianity would be a form of masochism where you just suffer for suffering's sake. And since it's not the end, since suffering is the path to glory, Christianity is a religion of genuine hope and great consolation. The Christian who needs to worry about suffering is not the one who is suffering, particularly if it's for the sake of Jesus Christ. The person who should worry is the one who is not suffering. Since suffering is proof of our sonship, it's a means for the spread of the gospel, and it is the path to glory. So let's hang in there. Let's encourage one another as we run this race and when as we fight what sometimes are very long battles. We need each other. But we have each other. That's what we were given to each other for. So that by the grace of God, we may, we may actually come to the end of the warfare and be able to say what Paul said to his protege, Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for His appearing. May it be so for all of God's people. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this word on suffering. Uh, it hits us. Uh, we can't avoid it. Uh, it is the ordained path to glory, but we live in a sinful, fallen world, and we are going to suffer at some point. And so, God, I pray that you would just give us the grace and mercy to make it through that as we trust in you. That's what you desire from us is simply trusting and believing and obedience, uh, Father, doing what you want us to do. So I pray that you would help us uh, this morning to see that truth, to embrace our suffering, suffering and see what it really is. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I just want to... Uh, mentioned the little video that we saw during the invitation again that was about three circles and this is a very good way to understand what the gospel really is it's a good way to present the gospel you start with a circle on the upper left and in there you put god when god created everything it was perfect it doesn't get any better than that but then as you saw you draw a line to the second one and sin entered the world as a result the world now is broken i think that's an apt description of our society, of our culture, of our world, it is broken. Well, God has a remedy. That's the third circle down on the bottom. That's the gospel. God sent His Son to die on the cross, to be raised from the dead, and is now seated with the Father in heaven today as a means. He paid the price on that cross that we could never pay. We have offended a holy God. Jesus is the only one that could accomplish our salvation. So all you do is trust 
and believe. Ask God to forgive you of your sins. He's the one you've offended. And trust what Jesus did on that cross some 2,000 years ago for your eternal salvation. You don't bring anything. I, I, I hate to pop your bubble, but you don't come before God and say, hey, look what all I can bring to the table. No, you bring nothing but a bowl full of sin. Even your good works, Isaiah says, are nothing but filthy rags. You come empty-handed before God. You ask Him to forgive you of your sins, and you trust what Jesus did on the cross. You believe in Jesus, and He'll save you. Then you will be an heir uh, of God. That's what will come later. You are co-heirs with Christ. If you suffer, <laughs> it's just telling you, yeah, you're going to suffer. If you don't know God today through His Son, Jesus Christ, I encourage you, come talk to me. Talk to somebody that you know that's a believer, that's a Christian. Get this straight. This is the most important thing you will encounter in your whole life. It's the truth of the gospel. You're lost and you need Jesus. Now, if you know Jesus, uh, I want you to stop complaining about your suffering. Man, that's hard to do, isn't it? What's Paul say in Philippians? Rejoice always, and I say again, rejoice. In all things, give thanks. That's Second Thessalonians 5. In all things, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Suffering is God's ordained path to glory. We're all going to suffer. The question is, how are you going to suffer as a believer? Are you going to bear witness to the goodness, to the grace, to the mercy of God in your suffering? Man, the glory that brings God. To hang on to Him when you've got nothing else to hang on to. That's what He wants from us all the time. I encourage you in your walk with the Lord, turn the sufferings over to Him. He's in charge of those. They didn't come to you by accident. Right? Grow through them. Trust God and be obedient. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.